Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll be honest, it's actually verse 1a is where we're starting tonight. This may be the shortest text I've ever preached. I'll try not to make it the shortest message I've ever preached. Maybe I could preach the longest message I've ever preached out of the shortest text. I've... No, I won't do that. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, if you've got a Bible or a phone or a device of some kind, just look at that very first phrase, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Heavenly Father, thank you for the very real and very obvious truth of this short text. Pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would allow me to communicate the truth of this text and that we would be reminded, perhaps re-reminded, or that we would learn exactly what you would have us to know from this simple but profound verse. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the spirit who makes application. And may we listen and heed his leading and his teaching to us tonight. Enable me. Superintend over my weakness, my distraction, my inability, and allow your perfect word applied by your perfect spirit to bless your children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to move very quickly here for a little bit as we look at the book of Genesis. I'll move quickly if my clicker works. What am I doing wrong, Seth? There we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Apparently, I had a slide for that, and I didn't know it. Sorry about that. We're just going to give some information about the book. Uh, Genesis is a debated book. It's a controversial book in many ways. There are things about it that people don't agree on. And so why would I pick something like this to preach? You know, go to camp. Why don't you just pick something that everybody agrees on? But it's so foundational that I think there are truths here that we need to be reminded of and learn. Uh, it's the first book of the Pentateuch. You probably know that. It comes from the first word. The name Genesis comes from the first Hebrew word in the book, which is Bereshit, that is beginning. And so it's an appropriate title. Uh, the author of the book is Moses. We know he was inspired. He wrote down exactly what God would have him to write. Uh, as I was preparing and looking at these texts, I can't believe how many, many pages of all kinds of different perspectives on who wrote the book of Genesis, I, I read a lot of pages. And some of you pastors who have preached this book know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a lot of debate on these things, and I kind of landed, and I'm very comfortable with what we find in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus Christ said, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you not, do not believe his writings, how you believe my word. He said also in Luke 24, And beginning with Moses and the prophets... He interpreted to them all of the scripture, the things concerning himself. Uh, so I'm comfortable believing that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote this book for us. How did he do that? Well, we certainly see evidence that he compiled the information. He compiled it. He may have heard oral tradition that was passed down. There is certainly historical aspects of this book as well. And of course, he was on Mount Sinai. And we know that he received revelation directly from God as well. But at the bottom of it, we remember that this is biblical inspiration. This is God's word. The style of the book then is a unique history. It's a unique history. It's not myth. It's not legend. 
It's not allegory or poetry. It is a masterpiece of writing combining many different genres. It is the story of God. It reflects him. It points to his significance. And it is divinely recorded truth and theology for us today. Yes, it is a historical book. It gives us facts and dates and people and places who are very, very real. But what we see behind all of it is the story of God himself, his self-revelation and truth about who he is. Some of the themes of the book then are God, uh, his person, his character, his nature, uh, his people, and his plan of redemption. You see contrasts all throughout the book. Blessing and cursing is a major theme of the book. Good and evil, light and dark, land, seed, blessing, all of these words reoccur over and over again. The hero of the book is God, God himself. The first 11 chapters focus on him and the origins of the universe, mankind and the development of civilization. Chapters 12 through 50 uh, zoom across much of God's chosen people coming from Abraham. And the purpose of the book then is to clearly show us God, his creation of all things, his covenant with his people, and his plan to restore all things. Genesis is a book about redemption. Genesis is a book of redemption. That is the message that God is clearly communicating. Why it was needed and how it would be accomplished. God's grace is seen from the very beginning as he gives to his creation all that is needed Man's failure does not take long to enter into the picture, and God responds with the promise that he will make all things right. It's a beautiful book, it's a powerful book, and it's a humbling reminder of not only the greatness of our God, but the goodness of God. If we break the book down, I told you we're only going into the first two chapters, but if you're just curious and you'd like to see, here's a way that you could break down the book. It has a prologue. And then 11 sections, all starting with what is translated in our English language as these are the generations of. Uh, it's the Hebrew word toldot. It's a marker that shows what the sections are. And you can see that they get a little bit progressively longer. Uh, we're only staying in that first section, the creation of the world. Uh, but you see how the rest of the book breaks down. And really that last section, the covenant kept, uh, that doesn't just go to the end of Genesis that goes through the entire rest of the Bible. So if I could get one point across to all of you this evening, and again, young people, I know you're not with us the rest of the week. You can grill mom and dad about what they're learning in Genesis for me, okay? But hopefully, even you will benefit tonight and be encouraged from this one big idea, that in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This is a reality that changes everything about who we are and how we relate to the world around us. It is an obvious truth, but it is very, very significant. So what do we learn from one short phrase in the very first verse of the very first book of the Bible? The first thing we learn is that there is a God. In the beginning, God. It's important to understand that the Bible, the Word of God itself, begins with an assumption about the existence of God, not an argument for the existence of God. 
In the beginning, God, the word Elohim is the word for God used here. It will be used 30 times in just the first chapter. This plural word, this plural of majesty reflecting the glory of God is showing us a God who is not a faceless, distant deity. He is a living and personal creator. He is a sovereign, perfect God, and he is self-existent. He is self-revealing. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal, sovereign, inescapable, powerful, righteous, holy, good, gracious. Genesis is theocentric. God is the center. And the very first thing that we see is that God is there. God exists. Now you can say, duh, Pastor Stephen. We know that. We understand that. But do you realize how much of what you can bump into today in our world that is unbiblical and wrong thinking is refuted by the one statement, in the beginning, God. That statement alone refutes atheism, that there is no God, polytheism, that there are many gods, materialism, the scientific idea of materialism being that material things have always existed, they've always been around, they are eternal, Pantheism, that the universe is God. Naturalism, that matter just exploded into existence at some point in eternity or at some point in time past. Empiricism, that truth is only what I experience or what I believe it to be. Secularism, seeking to conduct my life and all human affairs based only on naturalistic considerations, uninvolved from religion. We'll talk about that more when we look at him as creator Yes, there is a God. And this flies in the face and refutes many of the different things that our world would hold up as truth that are so damaging and destructive, not only to individual lives, but to culture and to our society and to eternal souls as well. Say, Pastor Stephen, that's easy to say. There is a God. It's easy to say, but it's hard to prove. I have people who don't believe that. I have friends who don't uh, agree with that idea. I have a teacher at my school. I have a neighbor. I have somebody in my family who says, it's easy to say that, but it's hard to prove. You know, it, it may be hard to prove. I'll, I will concede that. It may be hard to prove the existence of God, but I don't think it's hard at all to believe in the existence of God. It's not hard at all to believe that God exists. Yes, there is faith involved. There is faith in the perfect, infallible, authoritative word of God. And the word of God was given to us not to be our resource to prove the existence of God or to satisfy man's insatiable curiosity about all questions and all things. The word of God was given to us so that we might reveal the God who is, so that we might see the God who is there. Our human experiences Logical arguments, even cosmological arguments, the teleological argument, moral arguments, all of these things are not ultimate in proving the existence of God. 
Our faith is not blind, it is not foolish. It is not unreasonable, but it is necessary. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Fundamentally, can I ask you the question tonight, do you believe there is a God? Three of you do, that's great. <laughs> I hope that you believe in the existence of God, and that is the foundation. I believe that God exists. Everything else can support, everything else can be something that is affirming and reassuring of what we accept by faith, that God is who he says he is, and he exists. There is a God, and we believe this, and the reality is, is that the consequences for rejecting this truth are also outlined for us in the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There is a God. That is a simple, straightforward truth that we learn from the very first phrase of the Bible. Not only is there a God, but there is also a beginning. There is a God and there is a beginning. What does the verse say? In the beginning. There is a beginning. Just not for God. God doesn't have a beginning. We have a beginning. Our universe has a beginning. And the fact that we have a beginning and he doesn't have a beginning is why we believe and trust and obey him. Trusting and believing in anything else would be completely foolish. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the first creative acts of God was time itself. We can't fathom that very well, can we? I don't know how many times I've had somebody ask me about, when are we supposed to be where? And it's only the second day of family camp. Some of you have already done this, right? You've taken pictures of the schedule on your phone. You got that? You did that, didn't you? Because you know you're going to lose that little paper thing. Why do they have it plastered up on every door, every glass surface around the camp telling you when to be where? Because our lives function around time. How old you are, how much longer you have to work, what day you have to work, when, when do you have to go to work, when do you come home, when do you go to school, when do you come home, when is your next vacation, when is the next meal? Our lives revolve around the clock and knowing when we need to be where. That's not true for God. That's not true for God. And if we're honest with ourselves, the... the the reality of time or the reality of eternity can kind of freak us out a little bit. My children are 16 down to 7 years old, so maybe it doesn't happen as much anymore. But if you have little kids in here, I bet you have had this theological question posed to you. All the best theological questions get posed right at bedtime, right? Yeah. I don't know if there's so much little theologians as they are little sinners. That's what's going on there. 
Daddy, what are we going to do in heaven? Daddy, will I get bored in heaven? Because even doing my favorite thing forever and ever and ever sounds a little scary. And as adults, sometimes we think about that and go, yeah, it does. We're trying to come up with answers for the kids. How do we explain to them what eternity is like? How do we calm their fears about eternity when the concept of eternity freaks us out a little bit as well? No, you won't get bored in heaven because you won't be aware or understand the passage of time in eternity because there is no passage of time in eternity. To be in eternity is to be outside of time. I like the way one commentator said this and then we're going to move on. If you try to explain this, you will lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you're in danger of losing your soul. God is eternal. Our creator God has always been and always will be. There is a God and there is a beginning. These are realities that may be difficult and hard for us to grasp, but the very first phrase of the very first book of the very first chapter of the Bible tell us these truths we must believe. There is a God and there is a beginning. Third thing I want you to see this evening is that there is a reason we know this. There is a reason we know that there is a God, and there is a reason that we know that there is a beginning, because God has revealed it to us. Just like his creation, God's existence is a fact that is revealed to us. We are expected to accept it on faith. God has revealed himself to you and to me for his own glory. God has made himself known that his majestic person might be worshipped. That's why he did it. And whatever questions that you may have may or may not always be answered the way you want them to in the word of God, but God exists there is a beginning, and the reason you know this is because God has told us. Again, I can't separate the fact that a lot of my life involves being a dad right now. And so when I hear people asking questions of the Bible and saying, well, what about this, and, and what about that, and, and I can't find this answer, I quickly think of my own kids. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we were at the supper table, and we often have dessert after supper. And so there was a request made about what kind of dessert it was going to be. And my daughter said, can we have ice cream? And what my daughter did not know is that we had actually had plans. We were supposed to be going somewhere. We were going to have dessert at another place. And uh, mom and I hadn't told any of the kids that. Sometimes you just don't tell them stuff because you never know when plans are going to change get halfway to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and they're like, where are we going? Grandma and Grandpa's, okay. Well, she wanted, to, she wanted ice cream, and I said, she said, can we have ice cream? And I said, no. And she said, oh. Can we have cookies? I said, no. And she looked at me, and she said, can we have candy? I said, no. She said, are we having no dessert at all? And I said, No. 
She looked at me and goes, this is bogus. <laughs> I don't even know where she learned that word. I knew. I knew the answers. I wasn't trying to be a mean dad. I just wasn't giving all of the information at the time. She found out later. She understood later why she didn't get the dessert she wanted when she wanted it. We have a God in heaven who is revealing his truth to us and helping us to understand it. But the promise of his revealed word is not that we will always know everything all the time. God's revelation of himself is both general, our world, our universe, our own bodies, our moral conscience. Psalm 119 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, again reminding you of this verse, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There is natural revelation that points us to the very existence of God. And there is his perfect revelation of himself in his word. There is a God. There is a beginning, and there is a reason we know this. And that standard must start with what God has revealed to us. Our truth, our truth must be his truth. Our truth must be found in his perfect and holy word. This means there's one other thing that a proper understanding of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 refutes, and that's agnosticism, that somehow we can't know. We just can't know. There's not sufficient enough information. There is sufficient information, folks. God has revealed himself to us. It's a pretty well-known atheist who was in a video and he was debating with somebody and they were having a conversation and, and the person poised the question to him and maybe you've seen this, it was a pretty popular clip. The guy said to him, just imagine if you someday stood before God. I know you don't believe God exists, but just imagine if, if you did, did stand before God one day, what would you say to God? And after kind of laughing off the question a few times and hesitating to answer, the man pushed in and said, no, really, just, just hypothetically, if you stood before God someday, what would you say to him? And this atheist said, I would ask God this question. Sir, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? What? What are you talking about? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. Cre creation screams the existence of God, and if that is not enough, you have the very word of God that he has given us. All mankind stands without excuse.
God has revealed himself. He has intentionally said, here I am. This is what I'm like. This is my plan. And this is what I want and expect from you. So I ask you this question. How are you responding? How are you responding to the statement, in the beginning, God? I know a lot of you, I don't know all of you in here, but I want you to know that this statement means something to every single one of you in here tonight. Genesis is the record of God's sovereign power, his selection of a people for his own glory. God is not just an idea. He is not just a force. He is personal, and he has revealed himself to us. He is reaching out to you through his word. The Bible states that God is and that he is sovereign. And this means something to every one of you today. What will you do with it? How will you respond to this truth? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This shows us God's amazing power. And it only takes two work, two chapters for man to mess it all up. But then we see the amazing promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the snake crusher would come. Redemption would be provided. This is not an afterthought. This is not God's plan B. This is God's plan from all eternity. There's another book that begins with the same words as Genesis. It's the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is a God, there is a beginning, and there is a reason we know this. Have you responded to the truth of this simple verse. Have you received Christ, the word of God, as your personal savior? Do you know today that you have placed your faith and trust in the provision that God has made that we might be saved? If you've made this decision, are you living in light of the reality of the God who exists? In the beginning, God. At the bottom of your page there, if you're taking notes, there are some challenges that I have for you. I'd encourage you to tackle these this week. You have time. Just even tonight, consider that God is. He's revealed himself. And how are you responding to this fact? Read the book of Genesis. I don't know if you'll have time to read the whole thing this week, but I'd love you to read just the first two chapters before the week's done. Uh, if you can't get two chapters of your Bible read while you're at family camp at IRBC, you're doing something wrong, Okay. So take that challenge and read Genesis 1 and 2. Pray for God to teach you more about himself through this study. And memorize Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. I leave you with this thought. Just as we have no gospel without the cross, so we have no salvation story without the book of Genesis. It is a wonderful book. It is a powerful book. Let us learn from it and worship and glorify the God of creation. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reality that in the beginning, God, uh, that is a truth that impacts all of our lives. And I pray that it will be something that teaches us and leads us forward for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.